Hey there, and welcome back to the New Discourses podcast. This is James Lindsay. We're talking about Paulo Freire's book, The Politics of Education. This is part of our now sprawling series on this book, which is inside of a sprawling series on critical education theory. So we're continuing through this, but this is an important book just to remind you, or if this is your first time tuning into this series, this is an important book because it is the book that brought Paulo Freire's Marxified education model to the United States and Canada, to North American education, to colleges of education. Paulo Freire's most famous book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, was written in 1970. This book came out in 1985. This was the book that got people in colleges of education to pay attention to Freire and therefore to get the pedagogy of the oppressed, etc., taken seriously. I actually think this book is a lot more uh, telling and a lot more um, clear, if you will, not that Freire is particularly clear about what's going on with his ideas of education. So we're spending a lot of time going through it. If you've been following the series, you know, I don't even know how many podcasts we are deep on this guy now, on this book now, not even just this guy. Um, certainly we have gone through the first two chapters. There was two podcasts, or that was a podcast. We went through the introduction as two podcasts. We did the third and fourth chapters of podcasts, the fifth chapters of podcasts, two chapters on the two podcasts on the sixth chapter. And now we're going to talk about chapter seven. And this is where the book gets a little weird. For the listeners, let me just give you a quick little apology for this episode. If I sound a little gravelly or a little scratchy, it's because I have interminable laryngitis. I got laryngitis. I can't get rid of laryngitis. I'm trying to get rid of laryngitis. So if I sound a little scratchy or gravelly, that's what it is. But I figured I'm getting behind. I have other things to do. I've mapped this podcast out a couple of weeks ago, and I want to get on with other things. So I'm recording it gravelly, and you can enjoy those scratchy tones. So thank you for putting up with that. If you wonder how I got laryngitis, it's because even if I get a little sick, I keep going to events and I keep speaking all over the country uh, sick. And so my voice never quite heals, <clears throat> as it were. Okay, so this book, The Politics of Education by Paulo Freire, takes a weird turn at this point. So the first six chapters have really, and really especially in the sixth chapter, have really set up what his idea about education is. And so I kind of summarize that. I, I don't want to bog down here because this is already going to be a long one because this is the longest chapter in the book. But um, in a sense, he creates a Marxified education. In other words, he takes the idea of being educated, assigns it, or being literate, and assigns that as a special form of bourgeois property that some people possess and other people don't. The people who have it get to set and determine what makes you educated or literate. They get to organize society around advantage for the people who are educated or literate. And uh, therefore, he creates an entire Marxist theory of being educated, of having knowledge, of being literate. And uh, that is kind of the big thrust of what Freire brings to the table. He does this primarily through a number of tools and methods. You know, we've got this whole denounce the existing world to announce the new world thing, the enunciation, denunciation thing. He's got the generative ideas or generative concepts or generative words approach where rather than teaching somebody to read or do math or whatever subject, you instead use that subject to create politically generative uh, thoughts and 
retool the discussion to be about that instead of about the subject itself. So he says you don't want to teach people disconnected sentences and syllables when you teach them to read. So you teach them vocabulary words like slum, like struggle, misery, sadness, starvation, destitution, <clears throat> and so on. And you use those generative ideas to attach to their lives. He does this through what he calls a codification, decodification program. So you show people the generative concept in the abstract, then you teach them to problematize it, and then you decodify it by saying that's your real conditions. And he does this through what he calls a dialogical model where the teacher is a facilitator and the teacher and students are largely as equals, except that it's the groomer teacher's job to groom the student or the learner, I should say, into seeing the circumstances of his life in a particular way, which happens to be the Marxist way. So this is the Freirian education thing. And in the first six chapters of this book, he lays it out. This book takes a weird turn here. Now, I'm going to try to keep it focused on education and educational aspects. And obviously, he mentions education throughout. But the book, and this increases as we go forward, the book in chapters 7 through 11, so the next five chapters of this book, are much more about Freire's religion of Marxism, and then he kind of dabbles with education a little bit. And they're not very much about education. In fact, it's really shocking. When I was reading through this book the first time, I don't know how many times I'm at now, like seven or nine or something. When I was reading through this book the first time, <clears throat> I thought, well, um, this book's very interesting. It's not very informative. It's not very useful for what I want to talk about, but I guess I need to be familiar with it. And then I got to chapters seven and especially eight and nine. And I was like, holy crap, I have to show people this. And then when I went through the second and third times, I started to realize, oh, wow, the first and second and third and fourth and fifth chapters and sixth chapter especially are very important as well, which is when I went and diverted out. If you recall in the podcast series, I started to do this book and then I said, I've got to go do the Marx. I have to go do the theology of Marxism before I can continue with Freire. And I was correct. You have to understand that this is a religious book, not an education book. As a matter of fact, it's kind of a weird thing, and I don't think I've even mentioned this yet. Freire never, <clears throat> excuse me, Freire never cites a single education theorist in this book. He cites Marx. He cites Lenin. He cites, he talks about, I should say, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, etc. He talks about the revolution in China positively, that's Mao, never cites an education theorist. <clears throat> so this is the transformational education book that changed the world, apparently. And it's, like I said, it's much more a book about the religion of Marxism. He talks about a liberation theologian priest that was highly influential in his life, Dom Hilder Kamara, never cites an education theorist, never cites a single one. Doesn't talk about education theory at all. He's got his whole own view, his whole cloth Marxist view of education. Dom Helder Camara, by the way, was also a mentor to Pope Francis, who many people suspect of being a Marxist. He was also the spiritual mentor to Klaus Schwab, the chairman and executive executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, according to Klaus Schwab's own description. Weird ties. He also ended up getting Freire connected to people in America who ended up getting him connected to Henry Kissinger, who wrote as Secretary of State the letter inviting Freire to North America for the first time. Henry Kissinger is also the political mentor to Klaus Schwab. So the connections around these guys are weird. 
but it's undeniable anyway that this book is a religious book and it turn really that turn really starts to become obvious we've hinted at it we've heard it here and there we've heard marsh's ontology of man throughout this series already this book but it starts to get really religious in chapter 7 especially 8 and even more 9 <clears throat> chapter 10 is explicitly about liberation theology chapter 11 is a very short note of support, which we won't cover that here, in, in support of James Cone, who is the creator of Black Liberation Theology, which is where the kind of early roots of critical race theory and liberation theology and Walter Rauschenbusch's social gospel all mated into this completely racist, completely Marxist, completely nonsense, new approach to black theology called Black Liberation Theology. Um, and so, of course, Paulo Freire has to say, what a great idea this is, because he's just a religious Marxist. Um, but it's really weird. When I, when I started presenting this book, I said to you all, you know, it's really strange, and I want you to focus on this question over and over and over again as we go through this, is how in the world did this book get taken up? How in the world did people read this book this book and say, yes, this is what belongs in education. And that's an important question that needs answering. And the answer is actually simple is that the Marxists all the way back to like 1910 with John Dewey, uh, but also very explicitly starting in about 1970, 1975 had started to infiltrate their ways into the colleges, universities, and into K through 12 education and activism. So by 1985, people like Henry Giroux, who is Paulo Freire's greatest evangelist, who had discovered Paulo Freire in the 1970s uh, and worked with him, by 1985, he had managed to get over 100 uh, Marxists tenured as education faculty in the United States and Canada. He's very proud of that. That's how they did it. Classic, classic infiltration. They got people inside who would look at this book and say yes, knowing that other people would not quite know what it is, and would either go along with it, be scared to challenge it, would just kind of rubber stamp it, would ignore it or whatever. And that's how they got it in. But this book, the the shocking aspect of them saying yes to this isn't just how Marxist it is, which you definitely get from the pedagogy of the oppressed. It is how religious it is. And that in the United States and Canada, people in colleges of education looked at this blatantly religious book and said, yes, this is what we want for education in America, in Canada all throughout North America. So it's very important to keep your eye on this idea that they have created a religious model of education. They have created a cult indoctrination model in education. And Paulo Freire is really the source of that. We can talk about Dewey. We could talk about Thorndike, who worked with Dewey. <clears throat> we can talk about some of these other guys, uh, Robert Counts, I think is another name that were in the first half of the 20th century. We can talk about, I can't even say the Russian guy's name. I can spell it with the, the V-Y-G-O, something, Vyogostinsky or something, I don't know, something like this. I'd have to look him up. I haven't read him yet. I'm not claiming to be knowledgeable about him. I haven't even read him yet, but he's a blatant Marxist educator. Starts with a V-Y something and you can look him up. You can figure out who he is. I don't, I'm not going to look it up. It's not my purpose right now. I'm talking about Freire and we can talk about all of that kind of Marxist um, core of educational theory that was kind of working its way in through the 20th century, but it really went into a kind of religious cult status with Freire and after Freire and after this book, The Politics of Education and it starts getting real weird. 
in this chapter. Now, I've introduced this for a very long time, so I'm, I'm going to get to it because this is the longest chapter in the book by a very long, long way. Uh, it is an extremely long chapter. I'm not even going to present all of it. I'm going to leave a significant section out. Um, but by way of kind of tidying up, because I wrote this whole thing as an introduction, I, I just want to drive home that you should be wondering how in the world did this get approved? The answer to the question is not difficult. Uh, it's because Marxists have wanted to implement Marxist theology and Marxist teaching because it's their religion. And it's also the nature of that faith, the Marxist faith, that universal acceptance of the faith is the objective of the faith. The point is to make everybody have the socialist consciousness, become socialist man, then you have socialist society. And that's the precondition within the Marxist faith to its eschatological fulfillment. You cannot actually achieve the utopia until you have everybody who is still alive has the socialist consciousness. Man and society have to become unified, dialectically synthesized into the single thing, co-continuous, one thing. That's the Marxist faith. Man takes as his own object himself and the society he lives in, and also the world and his work product. Okay, and so... As a conscious subject, man has to transform not only the world around him, but also himself. Not only himself, but also the society, so that man creates society, creates man, creates society, creates man as an endless cycle. And like I said, the whole point of the Marxist faith is that's happening anyway, and so it can either happen unconsciously, which is kind of like natural selection, or it can be seized by the conscious. The means of production of man and society can be seized by the conscious and directed to a purposed end, which is the communist utopia. That's all Marxism is. Marx believed that everything was downstream from economic and material conditions as a sociological and uh, metaphysical materialist. Therefore, he believed that you seize the means of economic and material production, and by that means you create both man and society, and you co-create them toward a socialist vision. That has all been kind of jettisoned in the past maybe 50 years, and now the belief is that it's all politics is downstream from culture. So you seize the means of cultural production. If you control the means of cultural production, then you can control how people come out. You can control man and society, seize the means of production of those by the conscious to direct it toward a liberated or emancipated, whatever fancy word they want to use future, equitable and just are the typical words to describe that future. It's the same damn thing. Okay. So the precondition for the fulfillment of this faith is that everybody is, everybody shares that subjective view together. Everybody has the same understanding. Everybody has, has, their, has had their consciousness raised, or if they can't be re-educated in that consciousness, they've been destroyed. Uh, Herbert Marcuse says we introject this consciousness, this, this new morality, this new sensibility until it becomes second nature, which is why you're going to use tools like social credit systems as they go forward, because they can force everybody to believe a certain way, act a certain way. And it's sort of a fake it till you make it policy. If you force people to think this way and act this way and you make it life absolutely miserable for the uh, dissidents, absolutely miserable for the people who are smarter than that. Uh, then you can actually get massive conformity. You can actually get people to think this is just the way it is, and it's unthinkable to think any other way. It's too dangerous to think any other way. And when everybody thinks the same way, the belief, the magical belief at the heart of it is that that is when the true 
guided, purposed dialectical process takes over, and you get to the utopia in the long end of that, just working out contradictions and difficulties along the way. But this still leaves some tension. Uh, Freire, as it turns out, is reviled by old school purist Marxists uh, because he's a liberation theologian. If we want to have a laugh about it, it's kind of like if you thought of Marxism like a church, Freire is almost like a Protestant, and uh, the old school Marxists are like the Catholics, but the Catholics, Mar Catholic Marxists hate him. It's kind of funny because Mar Freire was literally a Catholic, Catholic Marxist as a liberation theologian, and that he was a Catholic Marxist is literally one of the things that the old school Marxists who are like the Catholic Church of Marxism don't like about Freire. I know that was complicated, but some of you will get it. So Marxists are supposed to be atheists, right? And so they're not supposed to be Catholics. So liberation theologians are off the whack. And so the kind of old school universal Marxist church, if you will, the Catholic Marxist church is where, where, you, where we use the word Catholic here now to mean universal, which is what it actually means, does not like Catholic Marxists in the sense of the religion of Catholicism, which is liberation theology. Uh, so this actually weirdly makes, I mean, we, we've drawn a lot of these kind of analogies, but Freire is almost like a Luther figure in the evolution of Marxism in a way. Uh, or I would even go so far as to say he, he represents a Christ figure, the Messiah of Marxist theology, depending on how you want to view this analogy, uh, and to different parts of religious history or the Bible. They're each accurate in their own way. He's either reforming Marxism tremendously by bringing it down to the personal level like Mar Luther did with the scriptures, or you could say that he's bringing it, uh, bringing Marxist salvation to the individual through faith as Christ offered and is therefore saving Marxism and uh, people. Uh, you know, he, he represents that capacity for salvation, although he doesn't hold himself up as the way, the truth, and the light so much, sort of, uh, his method does. And so each person is to become their own way, truth, and life in the kind of Marxist sense, but with everybody agreeing because everybody has to have the same subjective consciousness or else it's not truly critical. Either way, Paulo Freire represents a major departure from previous Marxist thought. And the four or five chapters we've been through, six chapters we've been through, already make that abundantly clear. But the four to five chapters we're going to go through now make it really clear. <clears throat> Pardon me again. So what made American Marxists so receptive to Paulo Freire isn't wholly clear, except that he was offering something that works. He was bringing back hope after the collapse of cultural Marxism and then later critical Marxism and uh, was sometimes called neo-Marxism or the new left, and which wasn't working and had been forced kind of back underground and had retreated into education in the universities. And along comes this so-called Marxist education theorist who offers a kind of new hope for all of Marxism. So in that respect, uh, Freire's very religious vision, which was deemed prophetic in his own words, was described as a permanent prophetic vision for education by his evangelist, Henry Giroux, offers a path for the long march through the institutions that had fallen apart, and thus a revival of faith for the antinomian critical Marxist religion, which was the mid-20th century version of Marxism that had become dominant, which had also reached a zenith of negativity and failure. It's probably worth pointing out, by the way, also, just as a cultural contextual idea, that this book, The Politics of Education, 
was published in 1985, so it hits the market just after Ronald Reagan's second inauguration, and the leftists of the 1980s absolutely were losing their minds about Reagan. <clears throat> Reagan's election and then re-election was a absolute scream, existential scream for them that the right wing was ascendant, that neoliberal market forces were taking over, and that their their revolution had been swallowed up in a huge counter-revolution. So anyway, so why Freire would include these extremely theological chapters in a book that's nominally a, about education is another question we need to address before we dive in <clears throat> to these next four or five chapters that we're going to talk about. And it seems to only have one compelling answer, which is that induction into his faith and education are synonymous for Freire. To be educated and to become a member of his church are the same thing. So this much has actually been clearly evident throughout the book so far, so go check out the previous like 1,100 podcasts about it, uh, as well as those, in including those where we covered the introduction by Henry Drew, who is his number one evangelist. What we'll see, and I'm going to try to keep the focus on education, is that education is a clear afterthought in these chapters, and the, the religion of Marxism, as Freire has reconceived it, is central. Uh, so that these have a very different tone, a very different timbre, um, and the, the chapters almost get a little bit manic sometimes. Uh, so in this regard, I consider the thrust of the critical education theory that we'll discuss from Freire in this book to have essentially culminated in our discussion of chapter 6. Most of what you need to understand about Freire and his model of education we'll come back to when we talk about uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed, but really those two po two podcasts I did on chapter 6 really nail it down. These later chapters cannot be ignored, however, due to the fact that they make the point unambiguously that what Freire is preaching in them is nothing short of religion posing as education, where the religion is Marxism looking actually nakedly religious. Usually Marxism is good at hiding the fact that it's a theology, hiding the, oh, no, we're a social theory, we're an economic theory, blah, blah, blah. No, you're actually not. You're a religion. And it's usually good at hiding that, but not so much here in Freire. Uh, so we now have to raise other urgent questions, which is why do we allow Marxists to fill our public schools with religious programming while we, which rightly in my view, prevent any other religion from filling our schools with religious programming? I don't think we should be filling our schools with religious programming, and I sure as hell don't think we should be filling it with Marxist religion. And then if, why are we doing this? Why have we allowed this? Why are we continuing to allow it? What does it take to change this? Those are important questions we should all be thinking about, but this set of chapters, especially starting here in chapter seven, but when we get to eight and nine, it's going to really blow your mind, make it really, really, really clear that what we're dealing with is a religion of Marxism that has overtaken our entire educational methodology. And it has no place in a United States where the First Amendment dictates that we don't do that in public schools. So let's kind of focus down a little bit. Um, the divergence from both classical Marxism, or maybe we should say it's fulfillment that's found in Freire, uh, and, and from critical Marxism is profound. Uh, what we're looking at is nothing less than a perverted recreation of the gospel, as a matter of fact. But in the satanic Marxist religion of pathos, in place of the logos named in the gospel of John, something we've brought up again and again and again. So what Freire is offering that has been so influential 
and made him so influential, made him the third most cited figure in the social sciences and humanities, is a Marxist prescription of salvation, something that the original Marx was a little bit fuzzy on, and the cultural Marxists didn't quite nail down, and the critical Marxists never quite nailed down. So what Freire is offering is Marxist salvation. Very messianic, which it's funny because in the early chapters we heard him explicitly say, regular educators, didactic educators, think that they're messiahs. They are coming in, they're using the banking model to fill in the kids who are empty, they're using the nutritionist model to nourish and feed so that they can ultimately save the illiterate, the uneducated from the fact of their uh, lack, from their deficit model of education circumstances. What we'll hear over these next few chapters, especially chapter 9, is that Freire quite literally takes a Marxist article of faith that man, not God, is his own creator, creates himself by social means, and brings it to fulfillment within each individual man. This is a gospel of Marxism, meaning directly like the gospel in the Bible. I don't mean like a gospel like the truth. I mean it is a recreation upside down in inverted and satanic Marxist fashion of the gospel. That's what Freire brings to the table. Invoking the language of the Easter, as a matter of fact, Freire literally advises that every man through the awakening of the Marxist Gnostic consciousness within himself is to die to the world and be reborn. We're going to hear that in chapter 8 and 9 especially. That is, not only is man his own God, he's also his own Christ. That the spirit of liberation will then come to fill the world and do its works through the faithful. This is extraordinarily religious. So holding to this obvious Christian parallelism, which we'll hear more and more of, Freire says in essence that man's ability to think and speak, which he calls thought language, leads not only to a perpetual critical Easter in oneself, but also in society, because society makes man, makes society, makes man, so on and so forth. That's the ontology of man within Marxism. <clears throat> so here in this book, this last half of the second half of this book, Freire reinvents and connects to speaking. Remember, he says we're going to learn to speak the world, to pro speak the word, to proclaim the world. That's a pun on logos, by the way. Uh, we're going to speak Marx's theological belief that man becomes man, that is, creator man or socialist man, by bringing his thought into being and seeing himself in his creative nature within the objects that he creates including himself as his own object, maybe if you're going through transition or something, for example, or just making yourself more socialist, raising your social consciousness, increasing your empathy, as it were, or in society that you're trying to create greater communities and community control, for example. He says that through critique, the conscious and socialist man, the born-again man who's gone through his own Easter, and again, this is more chapter 8 and 9, uh, denounces and announces and thus transforms the world, his society, and himself. Denouncing the existing world, which is negative thinking, as Marcuse had it, contains within it announcing the transformed and liberated world when you do it through praxis. And that transformed, liberated world is utopian, and he makes the argument explicitly that only leftists are capable of accomplishing this. And so this, for Freire, is the point of education. This is what they want to induce in your children instead of teaching them, since they've taken up the Freirean model and all of our kids go to Paulo Freire schools. This is explicitly religious instruction. Given the dialogical and generative approach, it's actually straight-up, full-on cult grooming into a renewed cult of Marxism that takes place spiritually within each individual. 
and then outward into the world from there. So now let's focus really in. I know I've wasted like half an hour, not even talked about chapter seven yet. This program for Freire's program, I mean, starts off with another perversion of Christ's teaching, right? At the beginning of chapter seven, where Christ says uh, that one should be in the world, but not of it. Freire actually begins this strange series of chapters with the instruction that man must be in the world and with the world simultaneously. And you have to know, as a liberation theologian, that Freire knows he's perverting the message of the gospel, that he's changing the message of the gospel. Christ says, be in the world, but not of it. Freire says, be in the world and with the world. He knows what he's doing. And he does it because, for Freire, man is in fact the creator of the world, which he makes in another mockery of God by learning to speak the word to proclaim the world. That's Freire. So like I said, this chapter is by far the longest. I'm going to leave out a huge section. Longest chapter in the politics of education. Its title is Cultural Action and Conscientization. And as that suggests, it is about how critical consciousness arises. In the previous chapters, what we saw was that Freire makes the case that conscientization, awakening progressive stages of critical consciousness, isn't just the point of education. It's what education means. Me, education is awakening critical consciousness stage by stage by stage. And funny enough that I mentioned that now, the part, the long section that's very technical in the middle of this chapter that I'm going to skip for now and maybe permanently, I don't know if I'll come back to it, is in fact on Freire's descriptions of the stages of conscientization. What are they? And this is intransitive this and transitive that and complicated terms for what the various four or five stages of becoming critically conscious actually are. I'm not going to go into the to the nuts and bolts there. I encourage you to pick up the book and read it. It's not, in my opinion, particularly interesting. I think using what we did in the previous episodes where I used Lukács to kind of summarize the stages is uh, simpler and a little bit more clear without using so many big words, but it's basically to make you aware that you are in a bad situation, that in fact that situation is oppressed. That is, a, it is oppressed because of systemic forces that are controlled by others, that you have a specific role in uh, the history. You're a part of this history. You're not just in the world. You're with it. And you have a particular role in transforming history that only you can accomplish because of your consciousness, which is a product of the fact that you are in this oppressed position in the world. So it's something like that. So this chapter Chapter 7 focuses on conscientization itself, which is really talking, therefore, about the marriage of theory and praxis, as, as, as it happens to be. And like I said, the goal at the beginning of this, the first major section of this chapter explores conscientization in similar ways as were introduced in the previous chapter by comparing and contrasting existence in and with the world and saying that you actually have to be both. So rather than be in the world, but not of it. In other words, keep your eyes on spiritual factors. For Freire being a Marxist, spiritual factors are being with the world. So you have to be in the world and with the world. So this it represents a complete reorientation of man at the metaphysical and ontological level. Of course, that's not a surprise given Marx's ontology of man is at the heart of the Marxist theology and Freire's thought. Man living in the world is subject to the world. Man living with the world is a part of it, a subject within it, a creator coming to know himself as such within that world. 
Freire's instruction is to learn this so that you can learn and, and learn to quote unquote read. The next chapter is about political literacy so that you can speak the world. Sorry, I do that wrong every time. So you can speak the word to proclaim the world. And so again, here we hear the whisper of the serpent from Genesis 3. Let's just read some Freire. He starts off by saying, it is appropriate at this point to make an explicit systematic analysis of the concept of conscientization. So this is how he starts. And Hegelians and Marxists love spending page after page after page dissecting the meanings of words so they can reconstruct them, kind of like Frankenstein's monsters, to their own absurd purposes. And so we have to make an explicit systematic analysis of the single concept of conscientization. Which, again, ironically, that's the section of this chapter I'm not going to focus on because it's just really technical, relatively speaking. He says the starting point of such an analysis must be a critical comprehension of man as a being who exists in and with the world. Since the basic condition for conscientization is that its agent must be a subject that is a conscious being, conscientization, like education, is specifically and exclusively a human process. This gets really interesting. This is, we're going to hear just how fearful of that fact Marxists are. And again, that's the root of the Marxist theology is the fearful of the fact that they are somehow, um, I don't know how to put it, animals, not fully human. They're obsessed with hammering out what makes man different from animals because they've removed the, the theological component that we are children of God. We are our own children. So there's this weird existential crisis at the heart of all of this. It is as conscious beings, Freire says, that men are not only in the world, but with the world, together with other men. Only men as so-called open beings are able to achieve the complex orientation, sorry, complex operation of simultaneously transforming the world by their action and grasping and expressing the world's reality in their creative language. So all we're running into already then is a reiteration of the Marxist theology. But Freire goes on to tell us how this can be done. And that's the conscientization process. I said that wrong again, conscientization process, which occurs through critical distance. That's what we've referred to from Hegel as speculation in the past. Freire's favorite word for it is admiration. Remember, admiration means seeing things as the not I, seeing it from a critical distance. You look at it as though you're, you're, you're detached from it entirely, which we've said my friend Mike Nana phrased as uh, the whole critical method is learning to stand aside and shit on the world because you're too cool for it. He says men can fulfill the necessary condition of being with the world because they are able to gain objective distance from it. Without this objectification whereby man is also whereby man also objectifies himself, man would be limited to being in the world, lacking both self-knowledge and knowledge of the world. So that's what animals do. Animals are in the world. They operate in the world, they do things in the world, they change things in the world but they aren't really with the world because they don't understand what they're doing. They can't objectify the things they're working on. They can't objectify, in fact, as he says, himself, yourself. You can't gain the critical distance to understand that you need to do a critical theory so that you can learn to grasp, seize the means of control uh, of production of society and of man and of uh, the world around you and direct it to the utopian end. Ultimately, what we're reading here then is, and this is, I mean, it's another two-hour podcast to get into this, but what we're reading is the hermetic, which is to say the alchemy 
based assumption that's integrated into all of Hegel and Marx's obsession with the subject and object dialectic. So Hermetic is a was a cult fad that was happening in Europe through, you know, maybe the 7th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. And Hegel was definitely caught up in this. I don't know how much Marx was caught up in this occult or not, but Hegel was, and his whole philosophy is built off of it. Uh, Marx's whole, sorry, Hegel's whole philosophy is built with this hermetic idea, which is derived from hermeticism, which is a kind of alchemy cult thing that's uh, ancient in origin, uh, allegedly attached to Hermes, what is it, Trig Trigesimus or something like this. Um, <clears throat> too many details to remember about all these things. But the basic idea of this alchemical model is, and we talked about this in the uh, Hegel, uh, Metaphysics of Hegel podcast that I did, is that God as a creator cannot know himself to be what he is, that is God and creator, except by comparison against an abject other. You can't know what you are without something to compare against. And you hear this throughout all of this leftist literature, whether it's uh, how Derrida frames out what discourses are in postmodern thought, that you understand words not just in terms of their definition, which is just given in other words, but in terms of what they aren't. You know what a house is because it's neither a hut nor a mansion. You know what a dog is because it's not a cat you or a horse or a bear. You, you, you learn to figure out what things are through comparison to what they are not. So you have to compare against some outside other. This is a hermetic belief. This is a alchemy belief that the thing, the, the, in fact, God, the deity comes to know what it is by creating an abject other, the world, the divine creates the mundane, puts itself in juxtaposition, and then slowly through the process, as Hegel had it, through the dialectical process of the contradictions of those two things banging into each other, the divine in the mundane, uh, and the mundane and the divine, the divine slowly becomes aware that it is actually co-continuous with its creation. It sees itself in its creation, and when it finally realizes this, at the very end, it becomes aware, self-aware of itself being deity, and it therefore uh, seizes its kind of power as deity. And that's when the lead turns into gold. The mundane becomes the divine. And so it goes. So God can't, the, the, the hermetic belief though is that God can't know that he's God until he creates something that's not God to compare against. And then he finds himself in that comparison. And in fact, he finds himself through the activity of his creation, which is man in his thinking process in particular within his creation that reveals it to him. What this then does in the hermetic belief is creates a master-slave dialectic between God, who is sovereign without realizing it, and nature, including man, who know what it is to suffer, who knows what it is to be in the world that's imperfect because the deity hasn't realized its own perfection yet. So, this gives over or connects to, but is different from the Gnostic belief that man has been flung into the world against his wishes. And what Hegel achieved was hammering those two things together. It turns out that they're not actually compatible philosophically. The Hermetic belief and the Gnostic belief are actually incompatible, in particular with how they view optimism and pessimism about the future direction of the world. And Hegel uses dialectic to take these two contradictory views and smash them into one thing that he then called science. And the shape that he gave it, if you listen to the long Hegel podcast I did, is a Christian Trinitarian shape. You could say that that's the alchemical alembic, the kind of pot in which 
that alchemy occurs is the Christian Trinity, where he says that, you know, the idea is like the Father and the world is like the Son and the state becomes the divine will on earth. That's a very Hegelian idea that obviously Marx took up. The state then gives rise to a culture that has a spirit about it, a geist, and that geist is where the transformation is starting to occur, the contradictions are working out, and eventually they give challenge to and give birth to, through a revolution, an idealistic or an idea-based revolution, to a new idea, a new conception of the world. And so the de the deity becomes just a little more aware uh, through this process, and that gives rise to a new state, that gives rise to a new spirit, that gives rise to another revolution, and that revolution gives rise to yet another more advanced, more sublated idea that has alphabined its way, spiraling through history toward the eschaton, where finally the theoretical and practical idea, or the subjective and objective ideas, combine into the absolute, and the deity realizes itself, etc. That's what's going on at the kind of deep theological level. And the that's uh, that's the uh, alchemical side, the hermetic side, and what we've got going on over here with the Gnostic side is that the Gnostics have the special knowledge that allows you to do the process. They know that we are flung into the world, and there's no hope. It's very negative. We're trapped. We're prisoners in the world. There's Foucault. Everything is a prison. And but with special knowledge, then we can actually know what's truly going on in the world. We can actually uh, possibly even fling off the jailer. We can recreate the garden. But how are we going to do that? According to Hegel, and more importantly, according to Marx, we're going to seize the means of production, and we're going to create the garden around us for ourselves. We're going to throw out God and create the garden for ourselves. So it's man's lot in this weird theology. It's man's lot to use his position in the hierarchy to reveal to God what God cannot reveal to himself. That's hermeticism because he has been flung into this world unhappily against his wishes and is trapped there, and that's the Gnostic part, and that there's a secret knowledge behind what is proposed as knowledge, that's the Gnostic part that enables him to do it. So that's what's going on. And so that secret knowledge that uh, God lacks is namely that he's God. And he mistakenly believes that he's not co-continuous with the world he created. Man believes he's not co-continuous with society. That's Marx. For Hegel, this is all pretty straightforward because he's an idealist. Ideas are generative, so man generates ideals, philosophizes his, uh, his way through the phenomena of his life. Um, this seems to fail to live up to or match the ideals that he envisions in his head. And so we eventually have a revolution where the ideas go through a paradigm shift. We have a, new, a whole new level, and the whole world uh, improves itself because man's ideas about the world improved in this kind of revolutionary process. It's a lot thornier and uglier for Marx because Marx casts down God and puts man in God's place. Man makes society, makes man, makes society, makes man, makes society, makes man, makes society. You have to understand that that's the core of what Marx believes about things. And that can be seized by the, by the conscious to direct it toward the communistic end. Society has, uh, material conditions for Marx that generate the social relations. Those social relations manifest in reality as material conditions round and round and round and round. So man is making society and making man is making society. Then conscious, in other words, the Gnostics can seize control of this fact and direct the course of the process. That's Marxism in a nutshell, like I just said. Each man through his work doing the subject-object dialectic, society, this man as a whole, is doing the same dialectic in turn 
by realizing that it is itself what creates man. So man takes himself as his own object. That's what Freire just said. Okay. And so when man realizes that he himself is what creates man through creating society and that he's going to do this iteratively by expanding the range of subjective uh, experience, subjective knowledge in the world, um, he is increasing his ability to see himself as his own creator. Up until that point, it's necessarily happening in a limited way because of his alienation from his full subjectivity and as a result of the social relations in which he's trapped. There's your Gnostic part. Okay, so man is creating society, is creating man, and so on, is just the deity concept reframed in Marxism. And man is awakening to this ontological fact of himself being his own creator by becoming more oriented to it, and that occurs as he becomes more socialist. What Freire is doing is combining these two approaches, another synthesis between the idealistic Hegel and the materialist Marx, He's combining these two approaches to a degree because he wants the realm of ideas to be a place where the work, that is, conscientization, occurs, but that conscientization arises by understanding the so-called material conditions in terms of the theory in which you live. And so there's this vague utopian character stacked into all of this explicitly in this faith, at the heart of this faith, but it's all done in a dialectical relationship to the material conditions that Freire says that he's evoking in people through his generative model, etc. Those are going to be both material and actually structural conditions, and that's what's shaping the consciousness, and then that's what you use by taking the student in dialogical method or uh, modes. You take the student as a conscious knower, so he's no longer a student but a learner who is as equals with the teacher, who is no longer a teacher but an educator and a facilitator of the process of conscientization. And uh, that's where the teacher gets the culturally responsive or relevant information that he's going to use to groom the students going forward. So what Freire has actually said here is that this process is uniquely possible in human beings and is uniquely possible only by removing oneself from one's conditions. That is, objectifying them through abstraction or codification, as he said, then you can problematize them and then you can decodify them. So you problematize, you see the problems, you introject, you introject the theory into the abstracted codified from a critical distance ideas. That's what the point of education is for Freire. And then you decodify that by returning it to seeing yourself within those conditions. You bring the subject back into that which was objectified. See, you're creating a synthesis of subject and object, just like Hegel and Marx wanted you to do. And for Freire, that makes them concrete. You become a concrete person aware of your concrete conditions, but now with consciousness rather than lacking consciousness, which is where you began. This is all done dialectically through the Marxist take on the Hegelian negative thinking, which is to say through criticism and problematization, which is the word that Freire uses for it over and over again. This is the outline that Freire gives for the conscientization process, as he has described it in chapter six. And it's actually also in stages how he describes it throughout this chapter, in chapter seven. And remember, this is the very point of education for Freire, so deeply that to him it's the only legitimate meaning of education and literacy at all. So this is what they want to teach your kids rather than teaching them to read or write. This is why your kids can't read or write, or do math at grade level. But it is also why they can complain about everything in Marx's ruthless, which is to say nonsensical, usually, in ruthless ways, and are taught to do activism, 
like writing theory about why nobody adopts or cares about their stupid ideas and doing activism to force them to do that anyway, indulging in their vulnerable narcissism ultimately. And these are really the only two things that these dialectical leftists like to do. And you think, well, that's probably an exaggeration. But here we have Freire saying, unlike men, animals are simply in the world, incapable of objectifying either themselves or the world. They live a life without time, properly speaking, submerged in life with no possibility of emerging from it, adjusted and adhering to reality. Men, on the contrary, who can sever this adherence and transcend mere being in the world, add to the life they have the existence which they make. And that really tells us everything, doesn't it? Man is a creator. He doesn't know he's a creator, but that's what sets him apart from animals. And as such, he is not actually bound by reality because he makes reality. So utopia is possible. You can have hope. All you have to have is critical faith. And that's what Freire brings to the table. This is a very, very, very religious process. It does not belong in our schools. This isn't educating people. This isn't teaching them to be functional. This isn't teaching them skills that they need to be a successful adult. As a matter of fact, Freire doesn't want people to be successful adults because successful adults reproduce the system. This is a religious cult indoctrination program posing as education and actually like a parasite latched onto education, like actual math lessons or actual reading lessons or whatever it happens to be to do what it's doing. What does Freire go on to say? Just to listen to listen to this. this how re, how religious is this, and how what is religion in this sense really doing? What does this call? It's 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 an answer to an existential scream, right? It's an existential crisis screaming out, and we're going to hear that. To exist, he says, is thus a mode of life that is proper to the being who is capable of transforming, of producing, of deciding, of creating, and of communicating himself. Whereas the being that merely lives is not capable of reflecting upon itself and knowing itself living in the world, the existent subject reflects upon his life within the very domain of existence and questions his relationship to the world. His domain of existence is the domain of work, of history, of culture, of values, the domain in which men experience the dialectic between determinism and freedom. So there's your Gnosticism sticking out like a sore thumb. If they did not sever their adherence to the world and emerge from it as consciousness constituted in the admiration of the world as its object. Remember, that's Hegel's speculation. That's sitting aside from, staring at, and reframing in terms of theory. If they did not sever their adherence to the world and emerge from it as a consciousness constituted in the admiration of the world as its object, men would be merely determinate beings. And it would be impossible to think in terms of their liberation. Only beings who can reflect upon the fact that they are determined are capable of freeing themselves. So there's, here's your Gnosticism again, right? But also Hermeticism. Only beings that know that they're in prison can try to ex escape prison. There's your Gnosticism. Only beings that know that they're within prison can possibly do that. And what are you going to do to free yourself? Well, you're going to realize that you are actually the divine trapped within the mundane and that you can escape that for yourself. Their reflectiveness, he says, results not just in a vague and uncommitted awareness, but in the exercise of a profoundly transforming action upon the determining reality. So you can transform the reality that you think is determining your life if you're a man. Consciousness of and action upon reality are, therefore, inseparable constituents of the transforming act. 
by which men become beings of relations. By their characteristic reflection, intentionality, temporality, and transcendence, men's consciousness and action are distinct from the mere contacts of animals with the world. The animal's contacts are acritical. They do not go beyond the association of sensory images through experience. They are singular and not plural. Animals do not elaborate goals. They exist at the level of immersion and are thus atemporal. That's an existential scream. That's an existential scream for the atheist Marxists. We evolved as animals, but we are not, not, not animals. We're not animals. We're different. We're not animals. We're different. We're not that. Look, we have consciousness. We can understand that we're trapped. We can get out. We can get out. We're not animals. It's an existential scream. It is a way for these people to distinguish themselves from animals, despite the fact that their theory says that they're animals. So what is it that makes men human and not merely animals? For Marxists like Freire, it's being a conscious subject who can objectify things in the world, including himself and his species, or as Marx had it, his species being. And that object becomes the site of the work that transforms it. It's what the conscious subject works upon, the object. So objectification is necessary to transform the object, and that's what Freire is talking about. The world, the self, man, society can be transformed, but you have to objectify them first. Then, as a conscious subject, you can do the work upon them. We see this in his codification and decodification approach from the previous chapter. It's very clear. Codification makes the thing abstract. He says the reason that you codify is that it allows critical distance so that the work of problematizing, denouncing, and thus transforming, announcing, can take place. That's alchemy, though. There's your hermetic part. This all happens through praxis, which is the word for the smashed-together ideas of Gnosticism. That's You have to have the theory, you have to have the gnosis, you have to have the special knowledge, and the alchemical action. That's the practice, the theoretical and practical ideas. The Gnosticism and the Hermeticism, have the, al- <laughs> the, the special knowledge and the alchemy have to be smashed together. And it happens only, according to Freire and through all, for all Marxists, through praxis, which is only possible from the position of consciousness. In other words, you have to then decodify that abstract thing you problematize and make it you. You have to learn to know that you are the conscious subject who's in the oppressed situation, who understands what it means to be oppressed, who understands what it means to be in the prison created by the world that's not serving you and your vulnerable narcissism so that you have the ability to objectify everything, thus crap on, thus transform the world. And so we arrive at the Marxist statement of faith, Arbeit macht frei, work makes free. Engagement, he says. Freire says, engagement and objective distance, understanding reality as object, understanding the significance of men's action upon objective reality, creative communication about the object by means of language, plurality of responses to a single challenge. These varied dimensions testify to the existence of critical reflection in men's relationships with the world. Consciousness is constituted in the dialectic of man's objectification of an action upon the world, yet consciousness is never a mere reflection of, but a reflection upon material reality. So if you haven't caught on that we're living in Hegel's dialectical faith of leftism at this point, 
when we're talking about Freire and that that creates a theology and that theology creates a religion and that religion is what they're indoctrinating as a cult religion your children into in schools, then I don't know how to help you at this point. This is so very obviously Hegelian. It's reflection through dialectical speculative philosophy, which Freire calls admiring. Praxis, he tells us, is only possible where the objective subjective dialectic is maintained. That's an exact quote. Praxis is only possible where the objective subjective dialectic is maintained, and only man, not animals, are capable of that. Conscientization, he says, is viable only because men's consciousness, although conditioned, so limited in its subjective range, can recognize that it is conditioned. The divine can realize that it's trapped within the mundane. This critical dimension of consciousness accounts for the goals men assign to their transforming acts upon the world. Because they are able to have goals, men alone are capable of entertaining the result of their action, even before initiating the proposed action. They are beings who project. That's kind of funny, isn't it? They are beings who project. Iron Law of Book Projection? No kidding. Have you noticed that this isn't really about education, though, like I said? Okay, so Freire now, like just to really nail it down, remember he cites no education theorists whatsoever in this book, but he does quote Marx. He says, we suppose, we, this is Marx speaking from, uh, from Capital, actually. He, do, he does the same kind of thing in a few places, and I was trying to remember what the citation is. This is in Capital. Uh, we presuppose labor in a form that stamps it as exclusively human. A spider conducts operations that resemble those of a weaver, and a bee puts to shame many an architect in the construction of her cells. But what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of the bees is this, that the architect raises his structure in imagination before he erects it in reality. That's exactly the ontology of man, the existential scream of Marxist theology, uh, that I've been referring to. And so Freire decides that Marx didn't put it clearly enough here and elaborates. He says, although bees, as expert specialists, can identify the flower they need for making their honey, they do not vary their specialization. They cannot produce byproducts. Their action upon the world is not accomplished by objectification. It lacks the critical reflection that characterizes men's tasks. Whereas animals adapt themselves to the world to survive, men modify the world in order to be more. So this is more existential screaming, more of we can be as gods, more serpent in Genesis 3. So let me just read that again, since you know where this is all going. Just that one part. This is Freire riffing off of his quote from Marx. Although bees as expert specialists can identify the flower they need for making their honey, they do not vary their specialization. They cannot produce byproducts. Their action upon the world is not accomplished by objectification. Therefore, it's not really work. It's just activity. That's Marx's distinction between them. It lacks the critical reflection that characterizes men's tasks. In other words, it's not transformative. Whereas men, sorry, whereas animals adapt themselves to the world to survive, men modify the world in order to be more. So the eugenics, the transhumanism, all of this crap that always comes along with Marxism is built in. It's core to the theory. It's core to the idea. It's core to the theology. And adapting themselves, he says, for the sake of survival without ends is to achieve and choices to make. Sorry. In adapting themselves for the sake of survival without ends to achieve and choices to make, animals cannot animalize the world. 
animalization of the world would never be intimately linked to the animalization of animals, and this would presuppose an animal's an awareness that they are incomplete, which would engage them in a permanent quest. In fact, however, while they skillfully construct their hives and manufacture honey, bees remain bees in their contact with the world. They do not become more or less bees. Now, this is going to get, I'm going to have to carry on a little bit, but we're about to hit a major point in Marx's Ontology of Man in this weirdly religious book, posing as an education book by Paulo Ferreri. For men, he says, as beings of praxis, to transform the world is to humanize it. Remember, he said, animals don't animalize the world. For men, as beings of praxis, to transform the world is to humanize it, to make it more human. For men, to transform the world is to humanize it, even if making the world human may not yet signify the humanization of men. It may simply mean impregnating the world with man's curious and inventive presence, imprinting it with the trace of his works. This process of transforming the world which reveals this presence of man can lead to his humanization as well as his dehumanization, to his growth or diminution. These alternatives reveal to man his problematic nature and pose a problem for him, requiring that he choose one path or the other. So man can either codify, problematize, and decodify himself into consciousness and thus transform the world in praxis, blah, 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 or, or he can carry on as he is and make himself less, dehumanize himself and others, make the world worse. Only by being Marxist do you truly humanize the world. Only, can, only through that way can you make it better. See, because he says the process of transforming the world which reveals this presence of man there's your kind of very theological statement, can lead to his humanization as well as his dehumanization. What we do matters is what he's saying. So we have to have the right consciousness in order to build the world correctly. This isn't true of animals. Animalization of the world would be intimately linked to the animalization of animals. Well, that's just silly. And this would presuppose an animal's awareness that they're incomplete. So there's a key idea in the Marxist theology. Man is the animal that knows that he's not done, that he can seize means of production of himself and make him more. Whereas bees, no matter how much contact they have with the world, no matter how much honey they create, no matter how, much, how many hives they build, do not become more or less bees. Men, however, by the choices that they make in the world, become more or less human. And that's the choice presented to all of us, according to the Marxist theology. We can choose to be more socialist and therefore become more human, to humanize the world, to humanize ourselves, to humanize the society. In other words, to make it all more socialist and more Marxist. Or we can choose not to, in which case we dehumanize one another, we dehumanize ourselves, we dehumanize the society, we dehumanize the world itself, and we diminish. And these alternatives reveal to man his problematic nature and pose a problem for him. Man himself is problematic. Man himself is a problematic creature. And so we have to choose one path or the other, he says. Often this very process of transformation ensnares man and his freedom to choose. Nevertheless, because they impregnate the world with the reflective presence, only men can humanize or dehumanize. Humanization is their utopia, which they announce in denouncing, 
dehumanizing processes. So now he says it. Whatever people like him say is dehumanizing must be denounced, and then the utopia can be announced, and that's how you humanize the world. And if you don't do that, you dehumanize the world. So you're on the right side of history or the wrong side of history. That's the whole Marxist view. The conscious must seize the means of production of man, society, and the world so that they can direct it to its purposed end, which is the utopia. Humanization is the utopia, which they announce in denouncing dehumanizing processes. They don't tell you how to get to the utopia. Adorno said you cannot cast a positive image of the utopia in 1966. You don't do that. You announce it by denouncing dehumanization. You denounce it by taking critical distance, that's codification, problematizing, that is denouncing the dehumanizing processes, and then decodifying and making yourself aware that you are the change agent meant to do that. That's the goal of education for Freire, is to teach your children to see the world this way and become that change agent. Humanization, in other words, Marxism, is their utopia. And you get there by teaching kids to denounce, to identify and denounce dehumanizing processes and everything they see. Don't teach them to read, write, or do math because that reproduces dehumanizing processes like having to go to a job where you read, write, and do math all day, where you end up making money for yourself but not for others. So this passage seemed really weird and silly, but it's actually, and I had to read it a few times to, to kind of understand, but it's really important. Humanizing the world is the Marxist duty of conscience. So if you know your First Amendment law and you know why they've said in the past that Marxism doesn't count as a religion, that communism's not a religion, Part of it is because they said incorrectly, flatly incorrectly at the level of the Supreme Court that it doesn't give rise to duties of conscience. But it does give rise to duties of consciousness, of conscience, I'm sorry. Humanizing the world is the duty of conscience. It's what every Marxist must do. They must be on the right side of history. And they do that by never building a damn thing, just by denouncing whatever thing that they see as being a problem. So complaining endlessly about whatever they think is problematic is the Marxist duty of conscience. They have to do it constantly because that's how you humanize the world. That's how you become utopian. So humanizing has a very special meaning here. It is transformation of the world or of things in the world like humans themselves or society. It is transformation by human beings into a garden fit for human beings, the Garden of Eden our birthright, according to the people who feel like a demonic force pretending to be God threw us out of it in the book of Genesis, which is Gnosticism. This is the great Marxist theological commandment. Do the work because Arbeit macht frei, because work makes free. And only the conscious, only the people with the special knowledge can do it. Only the people who are spiritually pure enough can cause the alchemy to take, because that's an alchemical presupposition. Only the spiritual, pu spiritually pure can unleash the divine from within the mundane, the elixir of life, the gold within the lead, whatever it happens to be. That's what this is about. This is a thoroughly religious document. This is chapter 7 of The Politics of Education by Paulo Freire the book that was presented to the United States and Canada in 1985 and caused them to say, yes, this is the direction we're going to take all of our children here on out. 
Freire says there is a further fundamental distinction between man's relationships with the world and the animal's contacts with it. They're obsessed with this, differentiating man from animal. All the way back to Marx, he writes about it in 18, at least in 1844, before the Communist Manifesto. He writes about it in Capital. You read it in people, you know, in the neo-Marxist and the cultural Marxists. And here, Freire is just obsessed with it. He brings it up. He's brought it up several times in this book. There's a further fundamental distinction between man's relationships with the world and the animal's contacts with it. Only men work. Arbeit mach frei, comrade. A horse, for example, lacks what is proper to man. What Marx refers to in, ex in his example of the bees. Quote, at the end of every labor process, we get a result that already existed in the imagination of the laborer at its commencement. Action without this dimension is not work. In the fields as well as in the circus, the apparent work of horses reflects the work of men. So the horse is doing what men want it to do. Just like the guy you pay when you hire somebody to work at your factory or at your company that makes something that you want to see brought into the world, you pay somebody else to do that work for you, he's doing the work of you. He is doing the work that reflects the work of you, not of himself, just like a horse. So you've dehumanized him. That's what they think. Hiring people to do work, to concentrate capital or concentrate uh, the capacity to produce, uh, working for one another for a you know shared vision like that, unless it's truly communistic, is not actually work. It is dehumanizing. It alienates him from the product because he's not producing the vision in his own head. He's producing the vision in your head. And so it reduces him to an animal. It dehumanizes him. The apparent work of horses reflects the work of men. The apparent work of your employees reflects the work of the bosses. Action is not work because of the greater or lesser physical effort expended in it by the acting organism, but because of the consciousness of the subject has of its own effort. Because of the consciousness the subject has of its own effort his possibility of programming action, of creating tools and using them to mediate between himself and the object of his action, of having purposes of anticipating results. Still more, for action to be work, it must result in significant products, which while distinct from the active agent at the time, uh, sorry, which while distinct from the active agent at the same time, condition him and become the object of his reflection. As men act upon the world effectively, transforming it by their work, their consciousness is in turn historically and culturally conditioned through the inversion of praxis. According to the quality of this conditioning, men's consciousness attains various levels in the context of cultural historical reality. So when you are bringing your vision into the world, you are doing work that sets you free because it allows you to see yourself as a creator. When you do work for somebody else, you are enabling them to see themselves as creator, but you're no different than a horse or a tool that's bringing their vision into the world, so you've been dehumanized. Whoever is dehumanizing you because he's willing to dehumanize you is dehumanizing himself. Doesn't matter how good your relationship is with your boss, doesn't matter how well you're paid, doesn't matter how much you enjoy your work, doesn't matter how good you are at your work, you're not producing your vision in the world, you're producing somebody else's, so everybody involved is dehumanized, and you've chosen dehumanization instead of humanization. Humanization is only possible when you, in fact, are doing it 
all as a true communal effort, truly voluntarily, where money doesn't have to mediate the exchange, etc., and therefore it's perfectly communistic, so only the Marxist is humanizing the world, everybody else is dehumanizing the world. Doesn't matter how many problems you're solving, doesn't matter how many products you're producing, doesn't matter how many things you're servicing, doesn't matter how many people you've lifted out of starvation, doesn't matter how many opportunities you're creating, doesn't matter how much better you're making life, doesn't matter how much cancer you cure, doesn't matter how many kids you are educating and raising up out of poverty, none of it matters. All that matters is you're either doing what's in your head or you're doing what's in somebody else's head. And the irony is that it's only correct if what you're doing is the communist vision, which is in somebody else's head, but not really because everybody's supposed to have it in their own head. Otherwise, you're just a horse. So this is where Freire breaks off and goes into the different levels of conscientization as he sees it. Um, then he spells out why that's all necessary. And the reason that he gives, and that's what we're going to turn to, we're going to skip the levels because it's technical and long, is to achieve not just a cultural revolution, which is what he says, it's to achieve a cultural revolution. It's in fact the title of the section. But it's not just to achieve a cultural revolution, but a perpetual cultural revolution. The point is to make your kids in schools, because this is about education, remember, even not a religious ontology of man. The point is, in fact, to train your kids to think this way so that they will engage not just in cultural revolution, but perpetual cultural revolution, a society that's never stable, ever. It is in this context, as a fruit of the Marxist theology, defining everything that we're talking about here, that Freire's educational program has to be understood. Its purpose is to generate destabilized cultural revolutionaries who, out of your children who will constantly destabilize the cultural and societal situation that they're in and pretend that this is what is the good life because it's denouncing the problematic which automatically, with no direction, communism doesn't know how, announces the new world that's not as problematic. So we're going to gloss over Freire's take on the stages of consciousness. We're just going to straight up skip them. It's a long section. Um, maybe it's worth doing a combined chapter or podcast at some point on that section, combining Freire and Lukács' ideas about consciousness. Uh, but we're going to skip down to this cultural revolution business. Uh, for now. So what we get to then, we skip that long section on the process of conscientization, and we get to the real point of education for Paulo Freire. The section is titled Cultural Action and Cultural Revolution. doesn't split any hairs, doesn't hide anything at all here. The point of the Freirean education model, and all of your kids go to Freire schools, is cultural action and cultural revolution. The point of the Freirean education model is to create cultural revolution. It is to reproduce that which happened in Mao's China, which is why it uses Maoist methods as it's come to be put into application. Check out the Grimmer Schools Section 3 or any of the talks I've given since I recorded it last October or November where I've talked about this thing ad nauseum now. I've got a new discourses bullet out about how they're using Maoist education tactics. And the reason is because the goal of their educational program with your children is to create perpetual cultural revolution. This, he makes absolutely clear, is what distinguishes the left, the revolutionaries, from the right. And of course, the left, the revolutionaries, is the only valid side. That's the humanizing side. That's the right side of history. The reason that it distinguishes between left and right is because of his view of utopianism, and utopianism is the goal of a so-called humanizing education. That's what they're subjecting your kids to. And remember, all your kids go to Palo Freire schools, and like I said repeatedly, the goal of the education system in North America today is to generate a American or Canadian-style red guard 
to go out the next time somebody like George Floyd dies or Roe versus Wade has a controversial decision and make sure statues get painted on, get knocked down, torn down, thrown in lakes to make sure the buildings and police cars get set on fire to cause mayhem and havoc, to go loot and rob and steal and beat just like they do every time. It's to create this revolutionary cadre of discontented political activist kids who can't read or write and don't understand the real problems in their lives, but have been taught to blame the problems in their lives on the system that they now believe needs to be destroyed, and they can be triggered by every single little event that the media can amplify or that their schools can misportray for them. That's the goal. That's what they're teaching your children to be and become through Freire schools, and you all send your kids to Freirean schools. So what does he say about this? This is this is a doozy. It would be unnecessary, he says, to tell the revolutionary groups that they are the antagonistic contradiction to the right. No kidding. But it would not be inexpedient to emphasize that this antagonism, which is born of their opposing purposes, must express itself in a behavior that is equally antagonistic. There ought to be a difference in the praxis of the right and the revolutionary groups that defines them to be the people making the options of each group explicit. The difference between the two groups stems from the utopian nature of revolutionary groups and the impossibility of the right to be utopian. This is not an arbitrary distinction, but one that is sufficient to distinguish radically the objectives and forms of action taken by the revolutionary and rightist groups. Now hold up a second. Let's just pause for one half a second to appreciate that he's literally, explicitly, openly, unquestionably saying that the goal of education for him is to make your kids revolutionaries and to make your kids utopian. We'll go back to Thomas More, who defined the term utopia in a freaking satire in the, if I'm not mistaken, 16th century, maybe it was at the end of the 15th century, and he wrote this satire, Utopia, where he described this allegedly perfect managed world and called it utopia because it's the Greek for nowhere. His point was it doesn't exist. It cannot exist. The Garden of Eden cannot exist. Maybe, I mean, if you're a Christian, you'll say, you know, thy kingdom come after Christ returns, but there is no Christ returns during this part. It's not here. There is no utopia. It's nowhere. And he's explicitly saying that utopianism and revolutionary attitude toward utopianism is the goal of education and that it is intrinsically the property that defines the left and opposition to it is intrinsically the property that defines the right. So in other words, if you are a utopian revolutionary, you're on the left, everybody else is on the right. You are not a liberal who's on the left in this mentality and your kids are not being taught to believe that there's this tolerant middle, middle moderate central left there's no such thing. The left is revolutionary utopians. Everybody else is on the right. Only the revolutionary utopians on the left, only they humanize the world. Everybody else is engaged in dehumanization and is thus an enemy of humanity. This is not an arbitrary distinction, he says, but one that is sufficient to distinguish radically the objectives and forms of action taken by the revolutionary and the rightist groups. There's no other alternative. You're either a revolutionary utopian for Freire, and this is what they're teaching your kids, or you're on the right. And right-winger was one of five, one of the five black categories, according to Mao, that had to be destroyed. And the revolutionary cadres would be the ones who destroyed him. To the extent, Freire tells us, to the extent that real utopia, which doesn't exist, by the way, real utopia is a fabrication of, of language. 
It's pseudo-real. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. To the extent that real utopia implies the denunciation of an unjust reality and the proclamation of a pre-project, whatever that means, because they don't know what the project is, I guess, revolutionary leadership cannot make the same kinds of mistakes that he believes Stalin made. He has this long paragraph denouncing how Stalin made everything bureaucratic and screwed it all up. But I wanted to point that out because this 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 paragraph, I'm only reading that one sentence out of it, the extent to the extent that the real utopia implies the denunciation of an unjust reality and the proclamation of a pre-project. And then he gives a bunch of instructions for how revolutionary leadership has to act. Okay. And basically it's you can't become bureaucratic. You have to be engaged in connection with reality, where reality means the Marxist interpretation of reality, blah, 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 blah. Have to raise consciousness, yada, yada, yada. Okay? But the goal really is to the extent that real utopia implies denunciation of an unjust reality and the proclamation of a pre-project. They don't know what in the living hell they're doing. They just know that they don't like the world they're in because they're Gnostics. They've been flung into a world that doesn't cater to their vulnerable narcissism, so they go berserk and try to smash it. And the goal is that when they smash it enough, as Marcuse said, just like all the other alchemists say, that you can free up the ideal society which is contained within the mundane real society. So what does this all culminate in for Freire, thus revolutionary leadership falls into internal contradictions that compromise its purpose when victim of a fatalistic concept of history rather than a utopian one. It tries to domesticate the people mechanically to a future the leadership knows a priori, but thinks the people are incapable of knowing. So there's your Stalinist vanguard that he didn't want. The, the, the leadership knows what's best for you. He says, you can't do that. In this case, revolutionary leadership ceases to be utopian and ends up identified with the right. The right makes no denunciation or proclamation except, as we have said, to denounce whoever denounces it and to proclaim its own myths. Of course, his movement has literally become exactly this, as it must, as it will every single time, because they don't know what in the world they're doing, and Marxism is literally just the sales department for fascism that's going to do exactly this. And then they'll say, well, uh, real communism has never been tried. It never got tried. It got co-opted. It's going to every single freaking time, because all they do is tear down and they have no program whatsoever, and people who know how to do things in the world step in and take advantage of the, the crisis, never let a crisis go to waste, and install fascism in its own name. Freire can't technically be wrong, though, here either. He just gets done wrong. You can't possibly be wrong, because if anybody does it wrong, whoops, they weren't actually true revolutionaries. They didn't have the true utopian idea. This is guru stuff. Remember I started this whole series on Freire by saying that he has this weird guru thing? Well, he can't possibly be wrong. He's a guru. And anytime somebody, anything that goes wrong, with he puts this program in the world, and anything that goes wrong, he says, well, you must not have done it right. You became right wing. You started to, what does he say here? Uh, you, you tried to domesticate the people mechanically to a future that you think you know a priori. So you have to be utopian, but to be utopian, you can't know where you're going. That's literally his argument. You need to be a revolutionary, destroy the existing society, utopian, who who acts by denouncing the existing society and proclaiming a so-called pre-project. No idea where they're going. And when that doesn't work, if it when it fails, when people try to do something with, with the calamity it creates, whoops, they try to domesticate people into a future 
that they already knew. They literally admit that they don't know where it can go. When I said communism doesn't know how, I'm telling you, they literally admit that if you think you know where you're going, you're wrong. This is guru stuff. It's, you don't know what to do next? Come ask me. I'm the guru. I know what to do next. A true revolutionary project, he says, on the other hand, so now we'll see what it looks like, to which the utopian dimension is natural, is a process in which the people assume the role of subject in the precarious adventure of transforming and recreating the world. The right is necessarily opposed. Oops, he didn't actually describe it. What is a revolutionary, pro a true revolutionary project, on the other hand, to which the utopian dimension is natural? Now we finally get to hear her. What is it? It's a process in which the people assume the role of subject in the precarious adventure of transforming and recreating the world. In other words, they just commit to being revolutionary activists all the time who believe that the utopia is coming if they do it long enough. That's it. The right is necessarily opposed to such a project and attempts to immobilize it. I freaking wonder why. They don't have the slightest idea what they're doing. But what does, what does Freire say? Thus, to use Eric Fromm's terms, Eric Fromm was a psychologist, by the way, in the Frankfurt School. He was a neo-Marxist psychologist. Thus, to use Eric Fromm's terms, the revolutionary utopia is biophiliac, meaning life-loving, whereas the right in its rigidity is necrophiliac, death-loving, as is a revolutionary leadership that has become bureaucratic. Everybody who doesn't do it, everybody who does it Freire's way loves life. Everybody else is a death cult. That's what he's actually saying. That's literally what he's saying. But he also tells you that he doesn't know what he's saying. A true revolutionary project to which the utopian dimension is natural is a process in which the people assume the role of subject in the precarious adventure of transforming and recreating the world. Don't have the slightest idea what they're doing. Don't have the slightest idea. But in short, only Freire's approach can be truly revolutionary. This is what they're teaching your kids to be. Incompetent dreamers. Who do You can't even dream what you're dreaming, because the second you dream it, then you know where you're going, and the second you know where you're going, you're now domesticating people to the vision in your head. You're making them do your work. You're dehumanizing them. Whoops, you've chosen the path of dehumanization. Freire's approach only, and only Freire's approach, can be truly revolutionary, but he doesn't know what it means. He can't even tell you what it means. In the sentence where he tries to tell you what it means, he doesn't tell you what it means. All he's actually doing is denouncing everything. He's denouncing the world that exists, the capitalist world, and he's denouncing the Soviet, especially Stalinist approach, of having been guilty of reproducing oppression. His solution to this is that a cultural revolution is clearly needed. And of course, that means Mao's presence is clearly felt, and so is Marcuse's presence. Marcuse said that we can't know what the, the good world, sorry, that was Horkheimer, said we can't know what a good ideal society looks like. We can only criticize it aspects of the existing society we don't like. Marcuse said that we can't engage in positive thinking, but negative thinking becomes positive. And then it can become sustainable. Utopianism, sustainability, I guess, is obviously central to Freire's educational project. Thus, it's bogus basis in hope and love. This is what Freire says. This is a project. Education is about hope and it's about love. Education is love. But by education, he means his Marxist weird thing. And so he brings hope and he brings love back into the picture for the Marxists who have lost this by this point. That's why he becomes such a big deal. Hope and love get redefined as critical hope, which is the hope that critical. if we're all critical in the way that Freire describes, then it'll work this time because we'll never get bureaucratic. We'll never do a Stalin. And love means loving people enough to make them hate the society they live in. 
That's what it means. And then creating solidarity around a mutual hatred of everything else. And utopianism is the kind of binding, fake binding glue that holds us together. So these are the hope that consciousness can take us through the revolution and caring about people enough to get them there. And these are a Marxist perversion of the concept of hope, as it's written in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and the love of Christ in the sense of caring about people in terms of their salvation. It's just a perversion, again, of Christianity. It's just an inversion, an upside-down version of the faith articulated in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and the love of Christ is depicted in the gospel. This all stems back to that single tenet of Marxist theology that instructs men to become conscious so that they might be able to make the garden, the utopia, here on earth for themselves without having to have or serve God. They become their own God. Man as society, when they become co-continuous, is the awakened theological object that is the deity. Socialist man in socialist society as a single idea. Freire elaborates, believe it or not, I'm telling you, this is crackpot. This is what they're teaching your kids. This is the basis for what they're teaching your kids. This isn't specifically what they're teaching your kids. Well, maybe they are. I, I saw the other day that the pedagogy of the oppressed is being assigned in a 10th grade classroom in California directly. They're not even horsing around anymore. Anyway, Freire says revolutionary utopia tends to be dynamic rather than static. Dynamic and rather than static. So revolutionary utopia... Nobody, it never stops. It never stops changing. It's constant change. It's constant destabilization. It tends to be dynamic rather than static. Those are words, but what does it look like in reality? It looks like chaos. It tends to life rather than death. Well, you can say that. To the future as a challenge to man's creativity rather than as a repetition of the present. To love as liberation of subjects. See, I told you they redefined it. Love. Love is liberation of subjects. Love is making them Marxist. Love is rolling them up in this revolutionary utopian nonsense. Lo to love as liberation of subjects rather than as a pathological possessiveness. All these false dichotomies. To the emotion of life rather than cold abstractions. To living together in harmony rather than gregariousness. To dialogue rather than mutism. To praxis rather than law and order. No, well, there's Antifa. To men who organize themselves reflectively for action, that's Marxists, rather than men who are organized for passivity. To creative and communicative language rather than prescriptive signals. To reflective challenges rather than domesticating slogans. That's funny, isn't it? Silence is violence. Do the work. And to values that are lived rather than myths that are imposed. That's how Freire characterizes his ideal left. doesn't make any sense. doesn't mean anything. In fact, it literally, what he just said doesn't mean anything. What he wants to make education into is to teach people to think about the world that way so that they can become revolutionary utopians, so that they will stop dehumanizing. And the way that you stop dehumanizing is you denounce dehumanization everywhere you see it, but you have no program of your own to put forth. So what about the right? The right, he says, in its rigidity, prefers the dead to the living. <laughs> okay. The static to the dynamic. Well, so some stability is okay unless you're Marxist, right? The future as a repetition of the past rather than as a creative venture. Pathological forms of love rather than real love. Frigid schematization rather than the emotion of living. Gregariousness rather than authentic living together. That's communism, by the way. 
means getting along with people instead of communism. No shit. Organization men rather than men who organize. Imposed myths rather than incarnated values. Directives rather than creative and communicative language. And slogans rather than challenges. So this looks exactly like the stage of cult grooming. These two paragraphs look exactly like the stage of cult grooming where people of different, more grounded views are denigrated so that the mark or the convert to the cult will disconnect from them. So you know the the process of, of, of a cult. First, you find the vulnerable. You induce and maximize or inflate that vulnerability. You give them a pathway out of the vulnerability by coming, say, to the club to the to the gay straight alliance after school or whatever to to the to the grooming club to the cult to the to, so you give people you get people uncomfortable and vulnerable feeling or identify who they are you invite them to the cult meeting and then you love bomb them you tell them how great they are oh wow you're on a revolutionary side you're going to stop dehumanizing everything's going to be great it's going to be dynamic rather than static we're going to tend to life rather than death to the future blah 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 and then you start telling them why other people have the really, really bad ideas. Like they shouldn't associate with those people. Oh yeah, the right in its rigidity prefers the dead to the living, the static to the dynamic. The future is a repetition of the past rather than as a creative venture. The goal is to disconnect people from anything that's been branded as the right. And remember, he already told us what the right was. You have revolutionary utopians that are the left and everybody else is the right. And so the goal here is to get them to join the cult. And he's explicitly saying that the goal of his educational program is to get people to join the cult and to dissociate, to learn to dissociate with people who don't get along or go along with the cult. This isn't just any cult. This is a revolutionary cult. And then we remember, again, this is a highly influential education theory book that this is located in. It is indispensable for revolutionaries, he tells us, to witness more and more. So this is where you start deepening the cult doctrine. After you've created, you bring, you find the vulnerable, you bring the vulnerable in, you love bomb the vulnerable so they feel like they're at home and have friends and connections where they felt alienated and alone before. You tell them how alienated and alone they were. You tell them, in fact, that this is the conscientization process. You tell them, in fact, that the society was alienating them. And then you start separating them from people who support the existing society, like we just said. And then the next step is you deepen the cult doctrine. This this is cult grooming. This is what it is. This is how cult grooming works. It is indispensable for revolutionaries to witness more and more to the radical difference that separates them from the rightist elite. It is not enough to condemn the violence of the right, its aristocratic posture, its myths. Revolutionaries must prove their respect for the people, their belief and confidence in them, not as a mere strategy, but as an implicit requirement of being a revolutionary. This commitment to the people is fundamental at any given moment, but especially in the transition period created by a coup d'etat. So what in the world is this about in a highly influential education book? So now we've got cult grooming. We have all the hallmarks of cult grooming. We have every hallmark of cult grooming. And then the last word, and we've got two so far, is especially during a coup d'etat where we're going to overthrow the freaking government. The revolutionary project, he says, is engaged in a struggle against oppressive and dehumanizing structures. You're on the right side of history. To the extent that it seeks the affirmation of concrete men as men freeing themselves, any thoughtless concession to the oppressor's methods is always a danger and a threat to the revolutionary project itself. This is an education book, remember. An education theory book. Revolutionaries must demand of themselves an imperious coherence. As men 
They may make they may make mistakes. They are subject to equivocation, but they cannot act like reactionaries and call themselves revolutionaries. They must suit their action to historical conditions, taking advantage of the real and unique possibilities that exist. Their role is to seek the most efficient and viable means of helping the people to move through the levels of conscientization to the level of critical consciousness. This preoccupation, which alone is authentically liberating, is implicit in the revolutionary project itself, originating in the praxis of both the leadership and the rank and file. Every revolutionary project is basically cultural action in the process of becoming cultural revolution. So remember that controversial chapter in Race Marxism, which is chapter five, or if you watched the lecture series I did in Tampa, Florida, uh, it was lecture number four, where I said that critical race theory only does one thing, and that is to create more critical race theorists. Here you go. The whole point of critical race theory is that it only does one thing. It raises racial consciousness. Remember when I said that and people were like, oh, and I said that in the book, I wrote that in a book. I was very serious about writing. I made an entire chapter of a six chapter book be about that. And I gave an entire lecture about that uh, in Florida. They must suit their action. That's the revolutionaries. They must suit their action to historical conditions, taking advantage of the real and unique possibilities that exist. Their role is to seek the most efficient and viable means of helping the people to move through the levels of conscientization to the level of critical consciousness. All they do is raise critical consciousness. In other words, create converts to their crackpot utopian revolutionary religion that has as a goal a coup d'etat. In effect, a permanent cultural revolution. This is how, how does Freire describe this? This preoccupation, it's all they think about, which alone is authentically liberating, which is the only thing that works, is implicit in the revolutionary project itself. I wasn't kidding. And this is what Freire wants to make education be about. The whole goal, the role of, we'll now say education, is to seek the most efficient and viable means of taking children through the levels of conscientization to the level of critical consciousness, this preoccupation, which alone is authentically liberating, is implicit in the revolutionary project itself. And that's why Freirian schools are Marxist schools, and that's what they are doing to your children in place of educating them. And the goal is clear, originating in the praxis of both the leadership and the rank and file Every revolutionary project is basically cultural action in the process of becoming cultural revolution. So who does he hold up as a role model for this so that people can understand? Remember, this is a book that swept these ideas through our nation's colleges of education, through all of North American colleges of education, and thus K-12 through schools, and even ed departments and universities. Well, let's listen. And I quote, Che Guevara is an example of the unceasing witness revolutionary leadership gives to dialogue with the people. Okay, so who's your ideal example of this? Freaking Che Guevara. Revolutionary guerrilla Marxist. Of course, he doesn't mention that he hated gays and shot them and stuff like that because that wouldn't go down well with the identity politics today. Che Guevara is an example. Che Guevara is, by the way, probably his favorite example. He has this whole part, I forget if it's in the Pedagogy of the Oppressed, but maybe he does it in this book too, where he craps all over Fidel Castro for not having basically the, the, the chutzpah to do what Che Guevara does. Che Guevara is his ideal. So Che Guevara is an example of the unceasing witness revolutionary leadership gives to dialogue with the people. So he wants to teach your kids to become Che Guevara. 
The more we study his work, the more we perceive his conviction that anyone who wants to become a true revolutionary must be in communion with the people. Guevara did not hesitate to recognize the capacity to love as an indispensable condition for authentic revolutionaries. While he constantly noted the failure of the peasants to participate in the guerrilla movement, his references to them in the Bolivian diary did not express disaffection. He never lost hope of ultimately being able to count on their participation. So there's your critical hope that your kids will grow up to be Che Guevara. And that's what they've modeled your kids' education upon. So now we get to get, so what, you know what he does next? How he said that you yeah, have this, this crazy, crazy cult indoctrination so that they become revolutionaries and that the whole point is just to raise critical, of education is just to raise critical consciousness. And what is the ideal model of critical consciousness is freaking Che Guevara. We're going to have some mega gaslighting, you, gaslighting of the I'm not abusing you because I love you type. Because Che Guevara loved us, right? In that same spirit of communion, Guevara's guerrilla encampment served as the theoretical context in which he and his companions together analyzed the concrete events they were living through and planned the strategy of their action. Guevara did not create dichotomies between the methods, content, and objectives of his projects. In spite of the risks to his and his companions' lives, he justified guerrilla warfare as an introduction to freedom, as a call to life to those who are the living dead. Like Camilo Torres, he became a guerrilla not out of desperation, but because as a lover of men, he dreamt of a new man being born in the experience of liberation. Super religious, super I'm abusing you because I love you. There's your critical love. I mean, sure, if you don't get along, I'm going to kill you. I'm Che Guevara. There's your critical love, and it induces critical hope that if you hold a revolutionary consciousness that by definition doesn't know where it's going, then we're going to get to the utopia in the end. All you have to do is just denounce everything you don't like all the time, literally know nothing, literally learn nothing, call it education, and then we're going to get to the utopia. There's your critical hope, and your critical love is you can act like Che Guevara because he loved his people no matter how many times he shot them for not getting along with him. In this sense, you think I'm exaggerating. In this sense, Freire writes, Guevara incarnated the authentic revolutionary utopia. Remember, that was the whole goal. That's what the left is and everybody else, everybody else is the right. In this sense, Che Guevara incarnated the authentic revolutionary utopia. This is a fucking education book that educators throughout North America looked at and said, yes, this is how we're going to remake education. In this sense, Che Guevara incarnated the authentic revolutionary utopia. He was one of the great prophets of the silent ones of the third world, conversant with many of them. He spoke on behalf of all of them. Inciting Guevara and his witness as a guerrilla, we do not mean to say that revolutionaries elsewhere are obliged to repeat the same witness. What is essential is that they strive to achieve communion with the people as he did, patiently and unceasingly. You'd think somebody would have read this and said no. You would think somebody would have read this among the quotes to Marx, the praise of Mao, praise of Fidel Castro, but then this, the ideal model against which everybody else is on the right wing, which is death-loving, which is a death cult, is Che Guevara. You'd think somebody, some adult, in the fucking room in 1985 would have read this and said, whoa, no, that's not what happened. How on earth 
did this happen? And he uses all this crap we just read to set up the idea that the right is bad because it cannot be utopian and it therefore cannot conscientize and therefore all it does is reproduce oppression and destruction and dehumanization. The right, he says, this is what they're going to teach your kids to think about left and right. Che Guevara, revolutionary utopian, ideal, everybody else, the right. And what does they say about the right? The right is by its nature incapable, besides being death-loving, a death cult, literally a death cult, literally, he called it a death cult. The right is by its nature incapable of being utopian. And hence, it cannot develop a, a form of cultural action that would bring about conscientization. There can be no conscientization of the people without a radical denunciation of dehumanizing structures accompanied by the proclamation of a new reality to be created by man. There can be no conscientization of the people without a radical denunciation of dehumanizing structures. The right can't do that. So the right is unable to even denounce dehumanizing structures. And it's also incapable of proclaiming a new reality to be created by men, which I grant you that. We're not so arrogant, are we? We are not actually satanic. We are not actually Luciferian. We are not actually Promethean. The right cannot unmask itself, nor can it sponsor the means for the people to unmask it more than it is willing to be unmasked. With the increased clarity of the popular consciousness, its own consciousness tends to grow. But this form of conscientization cannot convert itself into a praxis leading to the conscientization of the people. There can be no conscientization without denunciation of unjust structures, a thing that cannot be expected of the right. Nor can there be popular conscientization for domination. The right invents new forms of cultural action only for domination. That's the model they're teaching your children. Che Guevara, revolutionary utopian. But if you know where the utopia is going, you're on the right. Che Guevara is the only is the ideal I, the ideal avatar of what you're shooting for. That's the only good side. Revolutionary utopian like Che Guevara. Everybody else is on the right. The right cannot denounce injustice. The right cannot denounce unjust structures. It's not even to be expected of them. They cannot make people realize that there are dehumanization. That dehumanization might be occurring, and it definitely cannot create it or correct it. The right only invents new forms of cultural action for domination. So the right is intrinsically evil, and Che Guevara is the model that your children should learn about to grow into. This is a freaking education theory book that happens to never cite a single educational theorist. I wonder why. So your kids are going to be, because they go to Paulo Freire schools, as we've discussed repeatedly in this series, your kids are going to have to be educated by leftists because of this psychotic understanding which is a straw man of the right. They're going to have to be educated to become leftists because of this psychotic understanding, which is a straw man of the right. This is the basis for the Paulo Ferrarian education model at a deeper level. It's not how it works. It's not what it does or even why it does it. This is the deeper level of what it's structured around. Thus, he says, the two forms of cultural action are antagonistic to each other, whereas cultural action for freedom is characterized by dialogue, like Che Guevara's dialogue, I'm sure, because he loved men. And its preeminent purpose is to con uh, conscientize the people. Cultural action for domination is opposed to dialogue and serves to domesticate the people. 
so it treats you like horses or bees or cows or dogs. The former problematizes, the latter sloganizes. White silence is violence. Black lives matter. Stop Asian hate. The fundamental role of those committed to cultural action for conscientization is not properly speaking to fabricate the liberating idea, but to invite the people to grasp with their minds the truth of their reality. Which, in other words, Marxism. That is, ideological grooming. But he said in the part that I skipped that, don't worry, his is the only scientific non-ideological approach, which is Marxism 101. So it's obviously okay that he did it. And what do we get next? More Marx. Consist not an education theorist saying, whoa, what are we thinking here? Consistent with this spirit of knowing, scientific knowledge cannot be knowledge that is merely transmitted, for it would itself become an ideological myth, even if it were transmitted with the intention of liberating men. The discrepancy between intention and practice would be resolved in favor of practice. The only authentic points of departure for the scientific knowledge of reality are the dialectical relationships between men and the world. That is Marxism and the critical comprehension of how these relationships are evolved and how they turn the, how they in turn condition men's perceptions of concrete reality so let me summarize that scientific knowledge cannot be knowledge that is merely transmitted so the thing you think you're, you might be teaching your kids to learn science at school no 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 that's merely transmitted that's not science that's not scientific knowledge the only authentic points of departure for scientific knowledge of reality are marxism which you have for have to teach your children as science. So your kids are not going to learn science. This is where you see any hope that your kids will learn anything in Freirian schools die. They will not learn a single damn thing. Science is an ideological myth unless it's Marxist dialectical materialism, perhaps applied structurally to culture through something like culturally relevant education. Actual learning, according to this, would be indoctrination which would induce them into a death cult on the right. Those, he says, those who use cultural action as a strategy for maintaining their domination over the people have no choice but to indoctrinate the people in a mythified version of reality. Teach them science, teach them math, teach them to read, teach them to write, teach them history, actual honest history. Have no choice but to indoctrinate the people into a mythified version of reality. In doing so, the right subordinates science and technology to its own ideology, using them to disseminate information and prescriptions and its efforts to adjust the people to the reality the communications media defines as proper. Then there's some, there's some iron law of woke projection going on here, isn't there? The iron law of woke projection never misses. So the science, on the right, the science is what the communications media defines as proper and then indoctrinates people into? Holy smokes. Iron law of woke projection, I'm telling you, it never misses. Never. But what this means is that your kids definitely are not learning anything in Freirian schools because Freire is explicitly saying that all education, besides his own indoctrination program that literally teaches fake news, is teaching fake news. Fake science, fake math, fake reading, etc., unless it's teaching Freirian culturally relevant and responsive pedagogy, as they call it today. By contrast, he says, for those who undertake cultural action for freedom, science is the indispensable instrument for denouncing the myths created by the right, and philosophy is the matrix of the proclamation of a new reality. Science and philosophy together provide the principles of action for conscientization. Cultural action for conscientization is always a utopian enterprise. Science is on his side. But remember, Hegel thought his philosophy was a true higher science, literally the, the actual title of his most 
kind of groundbreaking book, The Phenomenology of Spirit, is System of Science, Volume 1, The Phenomenology of Spirit. He thought he had outlined a system of science. The way that that works, Wissenschaft in German meant more than something broader than what we mean by science today, which is how Wissenschaft gets translated in German today. And it referred for Hegel to two layers, Verstand, which is what we would call science today, it means understand, and Vernunft. And Vernunft is uh, reason, is how, as it gets translated, but what it means is Hegel's philosophy. So if you believe his systematic philosophy that's supposed to explain the entirety of how the world works, which is his dialectical method, that's how reason really works. That's the higher level science. And so what he's actually doing is just tapping back into that. Hegel thought he had the only real science. Marx believed that he had found the only real science of history and society that cast down the mystical shell of idealism that Hegel put forth. He made it material. So man makes society, makes man makes society, makes man makes society, eugenics. And transhumanism of Marxism is the only true science through seizing the means of production of man and society to transform the world, which is what Freire is literally explicitly teaching. And so the word and concept of science have also been perverted by the usual Gnostic polylogist tricks. If you don't know what polylogism is, it's probably worth a quick departure. Polylogism is the idea that words have multiple meanings. Poly, many, logist, logism, logic, meaning. And so words have multiple meanings. Science has been now turned into multiple things. There's Verstand and Vernunft. And Vernunft is the higher level one that nobody actually recognizes as science. There's science and then there's the science. Uh, And it's just a trick that you see over and over and over again where they use words to mean more than one thing, their usual meaning and their specialized meaning. Everything in this works off of polylogism, multiple meanings for words. So after rambling about this kind of exact crap about hating the, the the right and how awesome the revolutionary utopian left that doesn't know what it's doing is. For a few more paragraphs, I don't want to bog us down with, he concludes, thus, cultural action for freedom, which characterized the movement that struggled for the realization of what was announced, must then transform itself into permanent cultural revolution. So your kids go to Paulo Freire schools, and this is what they're about. Permanent cultural revolution, and making your kids into the permanent cultural revolutionaries. How? He says the authentic left cannot fail to stimulate the overcoming of the people's false consciousness on whatever level it exists, just as the right is incapable of doing so. So if you're actually on the left, you're always overcoming false consciousness. If you're on the right, you're making false consciousness. So the left is the revolutionary Marxist and the right is everybody else. And in order to maintain its power, the right needs an elite who thinks for it, assisting assisting it in accomplishing its project. The Iron Law Vogue projection almost hurts at this point. And he says, whereas revolutionary leadership needs the people in order to make the revolutionary project a reality, but the people in the process must become more and more critically conscious. Now, you think, okay, so we're going to have a cultural revolution. So we're going to raise critical consciousness, we're going to have a cultural revolution, and then we're going to enter into some kind of Marxist thing. Not for Freire, permanent cultural revolution. So he says the people in the process must become more and more critically conscious. And then he goes on and says, after the revolutionary reality is inaugurated. After the revolutionary reality is inaugurated. Then let that sentence, that that clause sink in. Revolutionary reality is inaugurated. Conscientization continues to be indispensable. It is the instrument for ejecting the cultural myths that remain in the people despite the new reality. 
Further, it is a force countering the bureaucracy which threatens to deaden the revolutionary vision and dominate the people in the very name of their freedom. Finally, conscientization is a defense against another threat, that of the potential mythicization of the technology that the new society requires to transform its backward infrastructures. After you get your revolution and you get your new society, you have to start having a new revolution immediately. That's what he's saying. You have to have more critical conscious, more and more critical consciousness. You have to continue to conscientize people because otherwise you've got big problems on your hands. He says, because men are historical beings, incomplete and conscious of being incomplete. That's Marxism, by the way. Actually, it's Gnosticism. Maybe it's Hermeticism. I have to look that up. Revolution is as natural and permanent a human dimension as is education. Only a mechanistic mentality holds that education can cease at a certain point, or that revolution can be halted when it attains power. To be authentic, and this is a very famous important line, and I've referenced it many times, to be authentic, revolution must be a continuous event. Otherwise, it will cease to be revolution, and it will become sclerotic bureaucracy. Revolution is always cultural whether it be in the phase of denouncing an oppressive society and proclaiming the advent of a just society, or in the phase of the new society inaugurated by the revolution. In the new society, the revolutionary process becomes cultural revolution. So you get your new society, you get your revolution, and you immediately have to begin the new revolution. Permanent cultural revolution. Permanent cultural revolution. Permanent destabilization. That's what Freyrian schools want to groom your children into. That's what the people say. What's the end game of the woke? That's the freaking end game of the woke. Permanent cultural revolution, permanent destabilization, permanent constant chaos. There is no solid end game. Now, there are people like the World Economic Forum who know this, and they do have a vision. They're sustainable development goals. They're Agenda 2030 or whatever you want to tap into. They're smart cities. They're Great Reset. They're Force Industrial Revolution. Whatever happens to be, their vision for the new sustainable circular economy. They have goals. They have an end game. The Wokes end game? These fucking idiots? Permanent cultural revolution. Which means that they're going to get used, as they always do, right up to the point where they've destabilized things enough for some really nasty characters to take advantage of what they've done, step in, and in install a tyranny we're never going to get out of. And then they're going to say, our program was never really tried. No kidding. And so to wrap up, and I know it's been long, why can't we just have it all right now? Well, Ferrari explains, the limits of cultural action are set by the oppressive reality itself. <laughs> no, oppressive reality. Oh, no. The limits of cultural action are set by the oppressive reality itself and by the silence imposed by the power elite. The nature of the oppression, therefore, determines the tactics which are necessarily different from those employed in cultural revolution, whereas cultural action for freedom confronts silence both as an external fact and an interjected reality. Cultural revolution confronts it only as interjected reality. Both cultural action for freedom and cultural revolution are an effort to negate the dominating culture culturally, even before the new culture resulting from this negation has become a reality. The new cultural reality is itself, sorry, the new cultural reality itself is continuously subject to negation in favor of the increasing affirmation of men. In cultural revolution, however, this negation occurs simultaneously with the birth of the new culture in the womb 
of the old. So there you have it. Permanent cultural revolution. Even before the revolution ends, you have to be starting the next revolution. Constant destabilization. Complete polarization into Che Guevara versus everybody else is on the right, and the right is literally a death cult. Iron Law of Oak Projection yet again never misses. This is the Freirean program. Now you'll notice that this book wasn't really, this chapter wasn't really about education at all. It leaned very heavily on the Marxist and Hegelian uh, theology, which people don't even recognize as a theology. And it makes very clear that the goal of education, as far as Freire is concerned, is to create that consciousness to the level where Che Guevara is the ideal model of the revolutionary utopian, which is the only good thing, the only leftist versus everything else is on the right. And if even if you get your revolution and you stop, if you're content with it, if you take control of it, well, you're on the right. If you have a vision for where it's going, well, you're on the right. You're just domesticating people. Constant perpetual revolution, which means you're going to keep coming back to the guru, Paulo Freire. But don't worry, we're going to proceed with hope, and we're going to proceed with love, and we're going to pervert, 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 pervert the message of the Bible and the gospel upon which Western civilization's rocks are, uh, the rocks upon which Western civilization are built in many regards. We're going to twist that all around. We're going to take the democratic idea of Athens and twist that one around. That's another rock of Western civilization. We're going to twist all these things around. That's Drew's huge thing is democratic education, democratic, 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 by which he means communist. That's what this is all about. Your kids go to Paulo Freire schools. This is what they're teaching them. This is how they're modeled. This is what their objectives are. This is what their so-called end game is. Constant perpetual destabilization, constant perpetual problematization of all that exists, ruthless criticism of all that exists, that never ends, that never has a target, that never uh, never has a, I should say, destination, um, that constantly denounces so that the new world that's different from whatever is now can be announced impossible to build, impossible to grow, impossible to succeed, constant destruction. Paulo Freire schools are a model for destruction based explicitly off of a Marxification of education that indoctrinates in a Marxist model. Culturally responsive and rele uh, culturally relevant education, which are, are, are the, these, uh, this is Gloria Ladson Billings project, literally a cheap repackaging of this into identity politics, especially critical race theory, aka race Marxism, that takes the Marxified education model of Paulo Freire and repackages it straight into uh, race Marxist indoctrination. I was just reading today a paper about trauma-informed care as it's been applied to education. Guess what? Same thing. Starts in exactly the same way. Doesn't bother citing Paulo Freire, but lays out Paulo Freire's exact same pedagogical commitments as its commitments. So this whole trauma-informed nonsense at the heart of social and emotional learning Paulo Freire. How did it get there? Through social workers posing as educators. How did that happen? Chapter five of this very book says that the social worker is an educator and the educator is a social worker, that there's no difference between them. And so what do they have? Schools full of social workers doing social emotional learning, teaching teachers to be more of social workers than educators. The whole thing makes sense when you understand that these idiots read this book in 1985 and said yes. That this man, Paulo Freire's educational model, is a complete and utter catastrophe. It is a demonic catastrophe that we have installed all the way through all of our college of uh, colleges of education, all of our education requirements, all of our education certification, and every major faddish-sounding program that you have running in education today 
has a root at least stuck down into the soil of Paulo Freire's Politics of Education, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and probably his, his book on critical hope. Pedagogy of Hope is what it's called. Disaster. These are the schools your kids go to. You have to understand this. 